the banking industry has been undergoing a radical shift, one driven by new competition from fintechs, changing business models, mounting regulation and compliance pressures, and now macroeconomic challenges. A very warm welcome to our final episode of the current series of podcasts focused on digital banking trends in Asia-Pacific, brought to you by Temenos. I am your host, Adelina Rusu, and I'm the Global Head of Solutions Marketing for Digital Banking at Temenos. Over the course of this series, we have spoken with industry experts and practitioners with the aim of helping banks chart a clear path forward to achieve digital transformation. We have discussed key challenges facing the financial services industry today, in Asia-Pacific and globally, from operationalizing digital change to the hotly debated topic of build versus buy and the road ahead for Digibanks. A huge debt of gratitude to my very talented colleague Swapnil Deshmukh, a consummate storyteller and our regional director for digital banking in Asia-Pacific, who brought these topics to life in conversation with Saigon Hanoi Bank in Vietnam, Tonic Bank in the Philippines and KAF Investment Bank in Malaysia. Together with his distinguished guests, Swapnil zoomed in key challenges banks across the region are facing in their digital transformation journeys, from core banking modernization to the people, leadership and change management aspects that are critical to delivering on such large-scale projects, from the role of SaaS platforms in banking to being customer-first and creating real differentiation through enablers such as the cloud and AI. We learn from their knowledge, experience, and expertise in making the decision of build versus buy when it comes to banking software, and the seemingly obvious but not always easy to achieve objective that digital transformation needs to be end-to-end and to include a solid partner ecosystem. We heard about the importance and influence of compliance and competition in making such decisions and the role of the technology partner as a co-creator in the journey to digitalize. We became part of a fascinating conversation regarding the future of Digibanks, how they can partner with other fintechs to deliver superior user experience while still focusing on profitability. On today's fourth episode of the series, I'm looking at the future and how banks in Asia Pacific and beyond might address some of the trends, changes and challenges coming our way. To help me do this, I am delighted to welcome two very special guest speakers. Kanika Hope is the Chief Strategy Officer at Temenos, leading our global business strategy with responsibility for market intelligence, strategic sales support, and value-based selling. Kanika joined Temenos in 2015 as Global Strategic Business Development Director, and she laid the foundation of value selling in Temenos. She established the now-renowned CEO Navigator Program and an influential series of thought leadership insights on strategic banking issues and trends. Cyrus Darwala is the Managing Director for IDC Financial Insights. Cyrus and his teams focus on all aspects of run the firm or change the firm. His research and advisory practices cover banking, insurance and capital markets and topics ranging from legacy modernization and transformation to hybrid cloud, big data, analytics and many more. For the past 20 years, which is roughly how long I have known him for as well, Cyrus has been working with financial institutions to help them assess their business and operational and technical challenges, selecting the right vendors and partners, better understand their IT TCO and grow their customer base. Hanika, if we could start with you, please. Embedded finance is a top trend in banking today. Can you elaborate on why this is the case and what impact is it having on traditional banks and neo players alike? Sure, Adelina. We are seeing an exponential rise in embedded finance the world over. Consumers and businesses alike want convenience in their daily lives. 
This is leading to a rising demand for simple, holistic, embedded experiences within apps or super apps that meet lifestyle needs in the case of retail or business operations requirements in the case of small to medium enterprises. For example, consumers wanting to buy a house get mortgage as well as home insurance within their house buying apps. Or an SME gets working capital financing within its ERP systems. Embedded finance is expected to be as much as a 7.2 trillion market in terms of the market capitalization of embedded finance companies by 2030. So a very big trend. You asked why this is happening. Well, number of reasons. Firstly, COVID-19 had a bit to do with it. It accelerated digital transformation. It speeded up digital customer journeys across all industries. And now, in the post-COVID era, it's facilitating brands to see financial services as just another product enhancement to their user journeys. Then there's open banking, which is maturing across the world. Open banking is promoting the development of banking APIs and universal access. This is being driven by regulation, but also by the rise of infrastructure aggregators like Plaid or Tink, who are changing customer expectations for data and account information portability. And the third reason is that ero the eroding trust advantage of banks versus new players. Customers are more willing to procure financial services from brands than ever before. This is leading to a fundamental restructuring of the banking value chain. Traditional banks, on the one hand, are already struggling with profitability. They need to find new revenue streams and scalable business models to compete and grow against nimble new entrants. Meanwhile, fintechs and neobanks want to offer embedded finance experiences. They need access to bank accounts, payments and lending without having to procure a license. They require end-to-end -end banking infrastructure, regulatory support and balance sheet and other funding sources to serve their customers. So by using banking as a service, they can avail of this facility from license holding banks and can launch very, very quickly. Our estimates tell us that it could be two months instead of the 15 to 18 months it would require for them to do it themselves. And instead of a big upfront investment, they're able to break it down into more manageable recurring costs. If we can stay with, with that topic of banking as a service, Kanika, please, can you elaborate a little bit more on it? What are some of the use cases and what examples are we seeing in Asia Pacific in particular? As financial services and banking products become embedded into digital ecosystems or platforms, blurring industry boundaries, like the apps and super apps that I mentioned earlier, we see the rise of the banking as a service business model. Built on the foundations of open banking frameworks, banking as a service has again come into its own since the COVID-19 pandemic. Just to define it precisely, it's the provision of complete banking processes, whether it's deposits, whether it's loans, whether it's payments, as a service from specialist cloud-based API platforms that use a licensed bank's secure and regulated infrastructure to enable the delivery of financial services at the point of customer need, i.e. embedded finance. Now, KPMG estimates that up to 100 large corporations globally are pursuing the embedded finance strategy, resulting in as many as 30 to 50 significant banking-as-a-service initiatives worldwide. PASS offers traditional banks to offer their services to third-party distributors or participate in an existing ecosystem to get additional revenue streams from that new channel. And it allows banks to expand their balance sheet profitably in markets where they do not dominate. For instance, in the US in particular, this model is really helping community banks to break out of their local markets and service fintechs. Ride-hailing apps like Uber and Deliveroo and Singapore's Grab are offering credit cards, digital wallets, and an instant payment service to their gig workers. 
and they benefit from the additional margin on banking services provided through BAS, but also from greater loyalty from their drivers. We're seeing innovative new BAS providers in the market all over the globe. There's M-Bank, there's Wodenio, there's Solaris Bank, Rails Bank, to name but a few. We're also seeing challenger banks branching out to provide BAS services, such as Green Dot and Starlink. Incumbent banks are either partnering with BAS players or directly providing the BAS themselves, like Goldman Sachs and BBVA and Standard Chartered. Standard Chartered is particularly sort of uh, interesting in Asia. They are providing BAS, specifically savings accounts and digital debit cards to Bukala Pak, which is an Indonesian online marketplace, which has as many as 13.5 million merchants and where 100 million users transact. So that's a significant BAS initiative. Cyrus, if I could do a virtual turn and an audio turn to you. Are banks actually asking about SaaS or are they looking still at on-premise solutions? What are you seeing? We are seeing a little bit of both sides of the camp, Adelina. Predominantly, uh, the, the entire move of banking is moving towards software as a service or everything as a service. Predominantly, the minute an institution, whether it's a large BBVA that Kanika mentioned, or Stanchart, or even a small bank mega out of Indonesia, the minute they start addressing what they call their core banking solutions, we automatically see them pivot towards a software as a service model so that they can hollow out or depend less on their core and move more towards a software as a service. So if I, as an analyst, had to put a number, I'd say about 70% of the new institutions or what I would call traditional institutions moving to a new platform are looking at software as a service. But there is a significant other portion, 30%, that don't mind the on-prem predominantly because service, maintenance, and of course, access to cloud becomes a bit of an issue for them, and hence they choose the on-prem. So I'd say the battle is being won by software as a service. More and more people are jumping at it, but there is a small portion that's sticking to on-prem, Adelina. Thank you for that, Cyrus. Kanika, if I could come back to you, what do you see as the future of challenger banks given the new interest rate environment? Are they losing their edge? How are incumbents responding to, uh, to the challenges we see today? Yeah, sure. I mean, building on Cyrus's software as a service question, the neobanks are definitely jumping onto the bandwagon. However, this year has seen a bit of a change in the environment that they operate in. Neobanks are entering uncharted territory in this rising interest rate and recessionary environment with tightening funding and incumbent fight back. Their competitive edge around niche propositions, a superior customer experience and rapid growth is being eroded by greater scrutiny on profitability by investors, as well as the incumbents catching up on compelling digital propositions on a wider range of products post-COVID. Funding has declined by nearly 30% since 2021 across all categories, with banking and lending more impacted than, say, wealth tech or payments. Investors are looking at underlying cash flow and profitability drivers like margins, customer retention, share of wallet, and operational costs, and not just at rapid customer acquisition. So incumbents continue to hold the primary relationship with their customers, current accounts, etc., and are able to meet the holistic needs of their customer base across a much broader product portfolio. They're also superior in compliance and KYC, 
The other challenge that neobanks face is that they need to improve how they assess financial crime risk, with some, particularly in the UK, failing to adequately check their customers' income and occupation. So, an environment that was very favorable for the challenger banks has shifted this year, and it remains to be seen how many of these challenger banks are going to rise to the challenge. I see our conversation here as shifting towards business models. And uh, Cyrus, I want to come back to you, if I may. What do you see as the role of DLT, including blockchain, moving forward? What does this mean to banks from a business model and the banking readiness perspective? Sure. Firstly, of course, I completely agree with Kanika on how a lot of these challenger banks are struggling. You know, just because they have the best technology does not mean that they will succeed in competing with the traditional ones. Now, that's where a distributed ledger or blockchain-based technology comes in as well, Adelina. And what that means, I'll give you an example. ANZ Bank was dealing with an Egyptian cotton manufacturer and distributor, and they were doing a tri-party sort of agreement with a garment manufacturer in China. Now, if you can visualize or imagine the amount of hops or what we will call the supply chain, the physical supply chain of such a convoluted trade book, Egypt, clearinghouse, transportation, Australian bank, the buyer may be an American buyer, production is happening in China. Distributed ledger or DLT, as we call it now, has redeemed these three, four, five parties and created transparency. So distributed ledger or a blockchain-based trade finance book, for example, what ANZ Bank is leveraging, creates a certain amount of transparency. So the supply chain, the, the physical supply chain interjects or overlaps with the financial supply chain. People know exactly when to pay. People know when they're going to get paid. People can track orders. Institutions are receiving money well in time because of the transparency. And of course, there's a certain amount of security. And I even add cost to Kanika's earlier point. Fees and incomes uh, are being challenged. So do you have to go through a clearing and settling house? You don't need to in distributed ledger. Trade finance is open, transparent, effective and of course uh, you know cost uh, comes down dramatically so we see a huge pickup in uh, dlt we see a huge business being driven by dlt which means all of the payments all of the real time payments all of the trade finance all of the debt restructuring that's ongoing right now all of that is being triggered earlier where there was a technology inhibitor now DLT comes and uh, sort of helps them move along in that pace. So great technology, and we see a lot of adoption in that sense. Specifically, what is the response that you are seeing around decentralized finance and digital currencies as well? Digital currency is an interesting one. The whole concept and drive around digital currencies was supposed to be an interoperability Uh, cross-border payments, multi-regions, multi-currencies. But now what has happened over the last couple of years, again, with COVID acceleration, each country has come up or each regulator has come up with their own 
digital currency. Singapore has one, Hong Kong has one, China has one, the US has one, and so on and so forth. So it is counterintuitive, I would say, that digital currencies that were supposed to be unanimous and all-encompassing are now becoming fragmented and almost fiat type, where each country has their own digital currency. But if you forward that, and if you look at a common denominator, say for arguments, say crypto, there is a common denominator. It's not currency, but it's traded as one. Uh, It's being used as one. There are trade books and buyers and sellers transacting in crypto. It is still not mainstream. But if a crypto or an Ethereum type currency were to make it mainstream that displaces the US dollar and becomes a traded currency, it also helps a huge multi-trillion dollar trade book. So I don't think digital currencies are there yet because of the interoperability and the fragmented nature in which they have been devised. But that's probably because, Adelina, these are all very, very early stages of digital currency. Now, digital finance or decentralized finance is another story. It kind of blends into my earlier point. Decentralized finance literally means I don't need intermediaries and I don't need people in between. I'll be able to go ahead and do trade, payments, real-time settlements, all where all three parties or four parties can view the contract, the smart contract part. So decentralized finance is picking up. Blockchain as a technology is picking up. But digital currencies are a bit of a laggard because they're not mature yet. And I suspect over the next couple of years, they will morph into something bigger, more acceptable. Speaking of the next horizon, the next couple of years, maybe the the next year, what is the rising importance of global regulatory responses to security and privacy alike that you think will dominate the agenda for the short term? Good question. I think Bank of International Settlements, BIS, the regulator's regulator or the boss's boss, has come up with a certain amount of mandates around security. For example, there was a new paper that they released around March or April, which is a prelude to Basel IV. Now, what that does, it puts security as the bedrock for everything. What does that mean, for example, for a core banking player such as yourself? That means that all solutions, no matter what it is, whether I'm doing a loans origination, whether I'm doing payments, whether I'm doing a customer onboarding, what about my solution? What about my whatever solution I I intend to harness would have a security layer, which is a solution layer. You go a little bit beneath that and you start looking at security and privacy around customer data. That is also a part of the operational security mandate by BIS. The operational security part says, as long as you have the consent of a certain consumer and you have onboarded him or her with their consent, you will be able to cross-sell, upsell. This is very important for newer banks and new banks, the challenger banks that Kanika talked about, because they are hoping to cross-sell multiple products, multiple databases. So as long as you have the consent, the privacy part is a check. And thirdly comes foundational security, which is your typical firewall, enterprise securities, app Base security, as well as, of course, security related to your own environment uh, and access identity and access management, as it's called. 
So these three layers of security have been very clearly defined by the regulators. And what that means is no one country will misinterpret the rule. It's not like, oh, this is acceptable in Hong Kong, but it's not acceptable in Indonesia, or it can be done in London, but can't be done in Prague. It's a universal rule that is applicable to all financial institutions and non-bank financial institutions that have to look at all three elements of security. They have to tick the boxes when it comes to customer privacy and data privacy, the GDPA and PDPR that we've heard about and read about. And now it's gone to consent-based marketing, which means only if I can prove that I have opted in, should I be receiving a certain promotion or an upsell. So all of this has become mainstream, and you will start seeing banks scrambling, if I can use that word, and buying security updates and patches in the very near future. And Cyrus, this has implications for software as a service, for sure. As well. Yes, absolutely. So a great point, Kanika. The software as a service dispense. So we are about to sign a very large contract with a bank here in Asia. They happen to use Temenos software as a service. That signing will happen at the Singapore FinTech Festival. Now, more than the evaluation of the software and its functionalities, which was rich, uh, very rich and expected and, and, and sort of, you know, well-delivered, We spent more time evaluating the software as a service security update. Is the software secure? Is the customer data secure? Are payments and transactions secure? Is the customer transaction record kept in software as a service? Are we taking this new operational risk? Are we taking most of the PDPA and GDPR checkboxes that are coming our way, in this case, through monetary authority? And once these were ticked, we built the business case on top of that. So you're right, Kanika. It's reverse engineering. Business comes up with a lot of wild ideas, and the chief risk officer and the compliance officers have to slap them on the wrist and say, ah, we can't do that. So you're right. I mean, this is the new norm now. Thank you both for your thoughts on that on that important question. If I could shift our attention slightly in a different direction, still linked with you know the environment and compliance elements that you talked about, Cyrus, but in a different way. How much attention uh, do you see banks paying to ESG, and what do you think will happen in the future? Oh, huge! It's I would say sort of the most debated and touted topic in most of our banking forums and every time we meet with a customer. So institutions now, some more, some less, have already carved out what they would call 12, 15, or 20% of their lending has to happen to what they call green companies. So sustainable finance has multiple connotations. Sustainable finance is not just how do I sustain my uh, profitability, actually, It's sustainable finance in the sense we will only finance companies that are in the sustainable world or sustainable businesses. So green financing has become a huge thing. Automation is now creating a bit of a back-end implication, which means if I'm giving my entire bank to you, Adelina, to run, you will have to be responsible for my greenification and my carbon credits. So there is a Uh, a third-party liability approach as well. So a long answer, but green lending, sustainable finance, 
creating books for green energy related companies. All of that is now mainstream. And some regulators like the Monetary Authority here in Singapore, and I believe the regulators in Europe have already come up with a certain mandate where each bank will have to prove that 20% of their lending book is now towards sustainable finance and that portfolio is going to grow bigger and bigger. So it is a big thing and the banks have carved themselves a nice little business out of that too. I agree totally, Cyrus. I think ESG is becoming more and more central across the whole value chain. And whether it's on making a positive change in society through the funding decisions that you mentioned, launching green products or running their own operations. And in Europe particularly, you know, the, there's increased regulation both on sustainability and on diversity with bodies like the ECB, the European Commission, the Bank of England, the FCA, enforcing greater disclosure and also climate stress tests. A number of banks and FIs are responding with technology-led innovations in this space. Some of the challenger banks and fintechs have made this their niche proposition, such as Floe in Europe or Triodos, which is a Dutch bank, or Greenly, which is a challenger again. Incumbents like DBS in Singapore or NatWest in the US are launching at the most basic carbon footprint calculators for their customers. There are sustainability price comparison services. And in the area of sustainable investing, which is obviously catering to green conscious investors, we come back to our friend Standard Chartered. They are partnering with Starling Bank in the UK to open Starling's sustainable finance platform called Shoal. This is also an interesting example of banking as a service because Starling is using Standard Chartered to source the investment products. And in the developing world, there's a very interesting use case of Ant Financial Services, which is partnering with the UN to provide loans to the most sustainable farmers. And the credit decision is made not only using traditional credit data, but it uses data from you know remote sensors on soil use, satellite imagery to check for deforestation, and even the recordings of sounds produced by humans and animals. So this is a classic example of Internet of Things, you know, being used for green financing. Sustainable finance. This is a wonderful example. And on the diversity and inclusion front, banks are launching a lot of initiatives, again, with innovative new products using technology. Santander has uh, launched something called the prepaid card for carers. So people who care for those who cannot manage their finances themselves. Then HSBC, I was looking at the ads actually in the metro the other day. They have launched a special bank account for the homeless. And then there are lots of cases of uh, use cases of cash recycling, charitable giving, artificial intelligence without biases. So banks are definitely doing this today. And we believe that there'll be more innovation in the ESG space in the years to come. So Adelina, we may need an entire podcast just for ESG, but... That's our answer. <laughs> I'd be very happy to host that as well, Cyrus. And um, I think, as both of you would know, this topic is really, really close to Temenos' heart because we have uh, launched earlier in the year uh, an uh, ESG investing as a service solution uh, for both banks and wealth managers. And it's something that sits firmly at the core of our strategy. So, yeah, why not? Let's do that. As we come close to the end of our conversation here today, I'd like to ask you both a question. What is the one piece of advice that uh, you would like to give to a senior executive listening to this podcast today? Kanika, would you like to go first? So whether you're an incumbent bank or a fintech, I think 
we need to think beyond banking. Whilst banking is a regulated industry with inherent barriers as we know it, we are now living in a world of embedded finance where industry boundaries are blurring, where innovation can come from anywhere, whether it's your competitors, your partners, your customers, your entire ecosystem is open. So in order to succeed and indeed survive, we need to be part of that open ecosystem and be open to new ideas, new talent, new business models and adopt them at the speed of light. So I think that openness is what I would leave our listeners with. Thank you. And Cyrus, if I could turn to you, please. Yeah, absolutely. And Adelina Kanika set up the stage very well for me because while she's talking about the business part, and it's a very, very valid and very important point, I will turn towards the operational and technology executives that we talk to all the time. And my advice would be try and look at a certain ecosystem of your partners that can help you with that uh, innovation that Kanika talked about. You see, many a times we bankers sit in a boardroom and make a decision, and it's rather inward looking. Uh, while if there are institutions out there, say, for example, Temenos, that have spent billions and billions of dollars in research and development and building out an ecosystem. So you can learn from them and you can adopt best practice from there. And these ecosystems do help you accelerate that innovation that Kanika talked about. So my advice would be uh, leverage or learn to leverage the ecosystems better so that you are not left making a, dare I say, faulty decision yourself internally. So you've heard it, folks. It's all about openness. It's all about leveraging your ecosystems better in a better way. And with that, I'd like to thank both Kanika and Cyrus for taking the time to talk to us here today. And we look forward to seeing you on another Temenos webcast very soon. I hope all our listeners have enjoyed this podcast series. If you're looking to drive digital transformation in your bank, please get in touch with your local Temenos team and we'll be happy to speak with you. We are the world's largest banking software company and it is our vision to be everyone's banking platform. You've been listening to Digital Trends in Asia Pacific podcast brought to you by Temenos. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Thank you so much for your time.